0: We are in Habakkuk chapter 2 tonight, and uh, we are looking at verses 15 through 20, Woe to the Wicked, part 2, Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 15 through 20. And uh, note uh, the overhead here, as far as our introductory slide, whoops, I'm not sure where I'm at. (laughs) Here we are. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I need all the help I can get. I'm not above it at all. Uh, <laughs> the just shall live by faith is the theme of the book. And, uh, we have, uh, worked our way through up till, uh, chapter two and verses uh, two through 20. God's second answer. We know there's, there's been a couple of questions that Habakkuk has presented to the Lord. And, uh, this is now dealing with, uh, the second question. Habakkuk was a prophet who ministered just prior to the time of the Babylonian captivity. And things in Judah were not good. It was a, it was a challenging time, to say the least. Uh, the people of Judah were very corrupt and wicked. Violence defined society. And Habakkuk could not understand why God was seemingly passive. This really troubled him. That's the opening four verses of the book. And then God revealed that he was raising up the Babylonians to bring disciplinary judgment on his people Judah. And this bothered Habakkuk even more. He could not understand why God would use a people more wicked, that is Babylon, to punish Judah, his people whom he considered to be less wicked. This did not jive. It's like everything he knew about God, this doesn't make sense. Well, God answered Habakkuk's question, his why question, by saying the just shall live by faith. Uh, you don't always get intellectually satisfying answers. We don't always understand the why. Sometimes it's beyond what our natural reasoning can understand. And God says, trust me, trust me. When we can intellectually understand, uh, the righteous are then called to live by faith. So I say the key verse in the entire book is Habakkuk 2.4. Uh, it is really a key verse on faith in the, the whole of the entire canon of Scripture. Uh, and really as we go to the New Testament it builds on this verse in terms of the the doctrine of faith and it says there behold the proud his soul is not upright in him but the just shall live by his faith you see what Habakkuk failed to see was the big picture we need to trust God for the big picture which we can never see because we're very limited in, in in our vision here but we need to trust God for the big picture and that he is going to work this out consistent with his character, even when we can't figure it out. That's what God's asking us to do. And you're going to face situations like that in life. It's like, why is this happening? This doesn't make sense. I can't understand how this could be good. God says, the just shall live by faith. He wants you to walk by faith in that situation. You know, when God says all things work together for good, To those who love God, at many points it doesn't seem like all things are working together for good. And that's where faith comes in. You see, as I say, we can't see the big picture. We can't see how it all works together in harmony, in the big scheme of things for our good. We only have three pound brains. uh, And Isaiah puts it this way, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Well, right there that tells us something, right? Uh, Our thoughts are very limited. And they're not up to God's standard. Uh, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. What's the difference? What's the difference between our thoughts and his thoughts? Well, here's, here it is, verse 9. For as the heavens are higher, higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways are infinitely higher than anything we can conceive or think. And this is where faith comes in. God says, you need to understand, you don't know the big picture. Trust me with this. God says, when you can't understand it, trust me. He has a plan. He knows uh, where he's going. He knows what he's doing. He knows the conclusion of the matter. And it is good for those who love him. And it's totally consistent with his person when we see the whole picture. I read of a lady uh, this last week. who was a professing Christian. And suddenly she was diagnosed with cancer. And then she said, quote, I'm not a believer anymore. That doesn't work for me. I can't believe in a personal God who would do something like this to me. And someone then responded, cancer killed her God. Yeah, that's a problem. Uh, I'm sure she couldn't understand it, but that's the wrong response. Uh, the Bible never once says figure it out, but over and over it says trust God. He's already got it all figured out. This is where our faith comes in. Trust God, trust his character. As Spurgeon said, when you can't trace God's hand, trust his heart. That's what God wants us to do. So God then proceeded to show Habakkuk, the big picture related to Babylon, kind of gave him a glimpse of the big picture that he couldn't see. Yes, God would use Babylon to discipline his people Judah. Yes, that's true. But that's not the end of the story. There's a a bigger picture out here. God would then in due time punish Babylon for their great sin. The fact that God would bring about punishment on Babylon is what Habakkuk chapter 2 is really all about. Habakkuk 2, 6 through 20 presents a series of five woe oracles directed against Babylon. Now, a woe in the scripture indicates coming judgment that would bring about misery, that would cause misery. Woe on you. Uh, misery is headed your direction in the form of judgment. Now, this uh, woe section, made up of five woe oracles, is uh, broken up into two sections as seen in verses 6 through 14 that we looked at last week, and then tonight in verses 15 through 20. And both sections end up with a big summary picture statement emphasizing God's ultimate glory and his greatness in his victory over Babylon. Now, let's just a look at a, a summary of these uh, five woes. Uh, the first woe, uh, chapter 2, 6 through 8, uh, the issue here is theft law, and lust for power. And again, these woes are directed against Babylon. The second woe, 2, 9 through 11, greed, arrogance, and unjust gain. The third woe, 2, 12 through 13, violence. We looked at those first three woes last time. So, you know, when God pronounces a woe on you, you're in trouble. Got five of them pronounced against Babylon here. Uh, then we have the interjection in verse 14, the coming pervading glory of the Lord. Uh, Babylon gloried in themselves, but God says your glory is going down and my glory is going to pervade the entire world. And then the fourth woe that we'll look at tonight, uh, 2.15 through 17, drunkenness, lust, and corrupting others. The fifth woe, uh, 2.18 and 19, idolatry. And then another interjection at the end here, a call to silence before the Lord. Well, Babylon is a major Bible theme. Uh, really, if you look at cities, you have uh, two major cities in the scriptures. You have Jerusalem, the most uh, addressed city in all of the scriptures, uh, found 800 times. J- Jerusalem is addressed 800 times in the scriptures. Babylon is second. Uh, Jerusalem is a city of God. Babylon is a city of man. And they represent different systems. But uh, Babylon, as I say, is found 300 times, and uh, it is a major theme in the Bible. The word Babel literally means to confound. Babylon is a city of confusion. City of man, city of confusion. Now, in Scripture, Babylon represents a city, an empire, and a system. All three of those concepts are found in the Scriptures. Represents a city, an empire, and a system, depending on the context. And often there is some overlap. It represents, in effect, unified rebellion. This is where organized idolatry was born. It was born at Babel. Go back to Genesis 11. Uh, Babel represents organized idolatry, organized religious rebellion against God. And the final form of it will come into play as far as this Babylonian system that even now permeates in the world. It will come into play under the Antichrist. Uh, This will be the apex of the Babylonian system, representing unified rebellion of mankind under the key rebel leader, the Antichrist. And of course, the Antichrist, is he a religious man? Well, of course he's a religious man. I mean, he's the most religious man, as far as false religion, that there will ever be. He says, I'm God, worship me. I'm all about religion. In fact, I am the God. I mean, that's, uh, and he will get the world to rally behind him, uh, taking the mark of the beast and so forth. Well, Habakkuk is dealing with God's judgment of historical Babylon in place at the time of Habakkuk. But it also has prophetic overtones that foresee God overthrowing the final form of this Babylonian system in the setting up of the Messianic kingdom. Now, we noted in conjunction with chapter 2 here in verse 14, uh, which ultimately sees Babylon's glory going down and the earth being filled with the knowledge of the glory of God's power, which will be all-encompassing as the waters cover the sea, we saw there that this will really be fulfilled in conjunction with the second coming of the Lord when he comes to establish his reign over all the earth. So even though God is addressing Babylon in the days of Habakkuk, there is a prophetic overarching theme that reaches to the final conclusion of this Babylonian system that will be in place under Antichrist at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So there is a a connecting theme, a Babylonian theme, and how the Lord's going to put down Babylon in the final sense. That theme is represented here in the book. Well, that brings us to the fourth woe against Babylon. Let's pick it up, uh, chapter 2 and verse 15. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. Now, we noted in verse 5 that Babylon was a society given over to wine. And here in verse 15, we see that the Babylonians used alcohol to exploit people. Uh, to the end, they took advantage of them sexually. Now, drinking and sexual sin often do go together in the Scriptures. In what the Bible calls debauchery or dissipation. Debauchery, excessive indulgence in sensual pleasures. Uh, Dissipation, pretty much the same thing. Uh, Overindulging in sensual pleasures. Uh, We have scriptures like this in 1 Peter chapter 4. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. This is is what they do. Uh, When we walk in lewdness lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. A a flood of dissipation. Speaking evil of you, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge a living and the dead. They're going to give an account for living this way. David Levy says, alcohol lowers a person's inhibitions and often leads to immoral acts in which the person would not normally indulge. Wicked people use various means to exploit people. And one of the things uh, the world is all about, the way of the Gentiles, as, as, uh, or the will of the Gentiles, as Peter calls it, is uh, the use of alcohol. The intoxication of those conquered by Babylon led to them being sexually degraded and misused and abused by the conquering Babylonians. Moody Bible Commentary says, just as a, a wicked man will get a woman drunk to take sexual advantage of her, Babylon took immoral advantage of its neighbors to look on their nakedness. Indeed, that is what they did. Now, uh, Jeremiah also addresses this. It says, uh, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. And I think he's talking spiritually here, uh, mainly. Uh, Led the world into... Deep idolatry. Babylon and idolatry go together. And so Babylon had an influence over the whole world that made all the earth drunk. The nations drank her wine, therefore the nations are deranged. Spiritually deranged. Uh, Into false religion. As I say, this, this false religious system ultimately will be headed up by Antichrist. Well, the abuse of alcohol has become an acceptable sin in our society. Uh, so long as you aren't driving, of course. You don't want to drink and drive. I mean, that's you might kill somebody, of course. But one stat says alcoholism is the number three health problem only behind heart disease and cancer. David Levy reports, quote, Alcohol addicts outnumber drug addicts 10 to 1. Alcohol-related deaths outnumber drug-related deaths 33 to 1. Whatever the exact figure, the problem in America with alcohol is a a big problem. And yet even among many professing Christians, it's now popular to socially drink alcohol with little concern or consideration for the dangers involved. Now, I'm not wanting to be legalistic. If you think I am, I'm not. Uh, Because the Bible does not forbid having a drink of alcohol. You say, well, I like to have a, a beer once in a while. Okay, just be careful with that drink a a glass of wine with your dinner. Okay, but just be careful with that. Um, What the Bible does forbid is drunkenness. And I do think we want to be wise as far as our testimony. We want to be wise as far as being a stumbling block. And uh, the one thing I constantly kind of wave, and I don't hear too many doing this, but I do it anyway because I see it emphasizing the scriptures, is that Even though we have liberty, and we do have liberty, I don't want to take anybody's liberty. There is liberty, but just because you have the right to do something doesn't always mean it's wise. And there are cautions. There are cautions in Scripture concerning alcohol. Somebody uh, put this together. Alcohol is a very effective dissolving agent. It dissolves families, marriages, friendships, jobs, bank accounts, and... Neurons, (laughs) Neurons, <laughs> but never problems. And then it gives some scripture. We want to be wise. Uh, there are warnings. The wisdom literature has a number of warnings about uh, alcohol, wine, Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Uh, we find this emphasis. Verse 16. You are filled with shame in, you are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink. It's kind of a command, like you you are going to drink too. Drink judgment and be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you and utter shame will be on your glory. Babylon constantly promoted their own glory. They tooted their own horn, but God is going to turn it into shame. They made everyone else drink to their humiliation, but now God's going to make the Babylonians drink shame. He's going to turn the tables on them, in effect. Now, when it says uh, he's going to expose them as uncircumcised, you realize that to a Jew, the idea of being uncircumcised meant to be scorned as godless. You're a godless person, uncircumcised. You're not in covenant relationship with God. So to be called uncircumcised was to be an object of contempt as one who is alienated from God. And when it talks here about uh, the cup that's the, in the Lord's hand, a uh, cup in the Lord's hand in Scripture often metaphorically depicts a vessel filled with wrath. When it is finally filled, it is poured out in judgment upon people. For example, God told Abraham that it would be 400 years until his people, the Jews, would come into the land of promise because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. Genesis 15, 16. The picture is that of a cup of wrath being filled up. And when it is full, then God pours it out. I think that's what's happening in the world today. I mean, uh, God's cup of wrath is filling up. It's filling up. It's filling up. How full is it? I don't know. How far is that going to go? I don't know. We don't know. But the cup is filling up. And when it's full, God pours it out. Note a couple of verses here. Jeremiah chapter 25. For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand. Again, metaphorically speaking. And cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink it to whom the Lord had sent me. We read in the book of Revelation, concerning this final form of Babylon, which I believe is going to be a revival of the city of Babylon, too, as well as the final form of the system. But uh, Revelation 16, 19, Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Here again, Babylon's going to drink that cup of the fierceness of his wrath. Well, this cup of wrath is pictured as being in the right hand of the Lord, which signifies the the position of power. Uh, Normal, I was going to say normal people, normally people are right-handed. Those that are, they're okay too, but anyway. Uh, The right hand is normally the, the arm of strength, and so that's the picture here. God in his power, his great power is going to bring this judgment around on Babylon, and then for emphasis, it's emphatic in the Hebrew. The end of the verse says, and utter shame will be on your glory. It expresses uh, uh, extreme contempt. This will be their experience. Verse 17. For the violence done to Lebanon will cover you, and the plunder of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood, and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. Notice he talks about Lebanon here. Uh, The violence that Babylon did to Lebanon is going to come back on them. They are going to reap what they have sown. Understand, Lebanon was a, a nation that is spoken of quite a bit in the Old Testament scriptures. It was north of Israel, and it was known for its great forests, its cedar trees, and for its wildlife. So here it was, you know, you got Israel down here, Lebanon up here north. Known for its, its great forest, its cedar forests, and for its uh, wildlife. Now, when Babylon ravaged this entire region, they cut down these magnificent forests. If you go to Lebanon, even to this day, they don't have the forest like we have depicted in the Bibles. It's been denuded. It's been leveled and raised through the years. Babylon did this. They were the, the initiators of this. They cut down these magnificent forests in Lebanon, and they took all the the great cedars and they used them for their great building projects. And Babylon was known for for their great building projects under Nebuchadnezzar and so forth. And in the process, they destroyed much of the wildlife there. Uh, Note uh, just a couple of references here in Psalm uh, 29, 5. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. See, you have fame here related to Lebanon and the, and the great cedar trees that were, were known to be in Lebanon. I call Psalm 29 the storm psalm, and it's how God's glory is manifest in the storm. It's an awesome psalm. And then uh, Isaiah 40, verse 16 uh, is emphasizing the greatness of God. And it says, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor it's be sufficient for a burnt offering again, Lebanon's got a huge, huge, huge amount of forest in which you could make a, a big fire for a big sacrifice. And God says, even if you take the whole of the forest of Lebanon, it's, it, I'm, I'm so great, it's not an adequate sacrifice. And even if you get all of, the, all of the beasts that are in the forest there, it still would not be an adequate sacrifice. My point here is Lebanon had a great reputation in terms of its forests and its beasts. Babylon destroyed both. That's what they did. And God doesn't appreciate it. ESV study Bible. Babylon used the famed cedars of Lebanon for its massive building projects. Nebuchadnezzar's royal annals indicate that he commanded his army to construct a road to bring these cedars to Babylon. So had a special, let's make a special road. Let's bring those cedars, bring them on, bring them on in here to Babylon. We're going to take all the the great cedars from, from Lebanon. That's what they did. However, the worst of Babylon's atrocities were the violent shedding of blood as they violently overtook the land. Drunkenness, immorality, and viciousness defined them. Now, God hadn't overlooked it. No wonder, <laughs> you look at all this, no wonder Habakkuk's like, what? What? You're going you're to bring Babylon against us? How in the world is, does that work? But God hadn't overlooked it. He had record of it. and in, in due time, they were going to pay for it. As the old preacher says, payday someday. And payday was going to come for Babylon. It's exactly what he's telling them here. This charge of bloodshed was also stated in verse 8 and verse 12. Sooner or later, God holds people accountable for murderous rampage. No one just gets away with murder. Might think they do, but they don't. The blood does continue to cry out. If you properly understand the big picture, there is a payday someday. Well, we now come to the fifth and the final woe bracket as seen in verses 18 and 19. Although the woe is not actually pronounced until we get to verse 19. But it goes together as a unit. Verse 18. What profit is the image that its maker should carve it, the molded image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols? I think the worst is saved for last here. We've got five woes. The worst is saved for last. In spite of all the atrocities that Babylon committed, I don't think there was anything more offensive to God than flagrant idolatry. God comes down on Babylon harder for this sin of idolatry than for anything else they were involved in. And you understand that Babylon is really synonymous with idolatry. That's what Babylon is about, organized idolatry, organized false religion. It all goes back to Babylon. It all grows out of Babylon. That's one of the great themes in the Bible that comes to its ultimate uh, conclusion and consummation under Antichrist. There's a reason the very first of the Ten Commandments says, you shall have no other gods before me. The greatest of all the commands is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Therefore, to disregard God and replace him with other false gods is most offensive. Carved images are consistently condemned as folly and futile by the prophets. Commonly, an idol was a a molded image created by melting uh, metal and forming it into the shape of a false god. But the whole thing was really a lie. Do you see there? It says a teacher of lies. The idol can do nothing. But it serves to be a teacher of lies, in effect. It promotes deception. The Nelson Study Bible says, Idolatry begins with deception, encourages deception, and calls for a commitment to deception. Yeah, that's idolatry. That's idolatry. And it is amazing. You've got uh, you know, so much idolatry in uh, Catholicism, uh, Christendom. And, of course, Catholicism is the largest branch of it. It's, it's full of idolatry. M- Mariology. Uh, uh, so much idolatry in the mix here. Oh, the folly. Uh, the maker of an idol then trusts it to do something for him. This is really spiritual insanity. Uh, these are just mute, dumb, lifeless idols. The question here, uh, what prophet is such an image? Well, the answer is what? None. Absolutely none. Uh, they could not speak at all. You know, you're in big trouble when your God doesn't speak at all, doesn't move at all, doesn't do anything at all, just sits there like a dumb God. You got a really stupid God. I mean, it's 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 it deserves to be mocked. Any supposed oracle attributed to them is purely a lie. You know, we have this uh, stated in Psalm 115, one of the strong sections in Scripture, uh, you know, speaking against idolatry. Uh, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak, eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear, noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle, feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. Those who make them and trust in them are like them, meaning they are just as spiritually lifeless as the dumb idols they serve. Notice, we come to the woe, verse 19. Woe to him who says to the wood, Awake! Awake! Wake up, God! To the silent stone, arise! Get up! It shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. Now, the New American Standard translates, uh, when when it says here, uh, interjected here, in verse 19 in the New King James, it shall teach. Uh, the New American Standard translates this as a mocking question. And that is your teacher? And that is your teacher? This is similar in tone to Elijah mocking the prophets of Baal. I, I always find this kind of humorous uh, in 1 uh, Kings chapter 18, you know, where Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal and says, Okay, a challenge here. The God who answers by fire, let him be God. And so they say, Okay, okay. And we pick it up, verse twenty-six. They took the bull that was given them and they prepared it. Called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, "Oh, Baal, answer us!" But there was no voice; no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, "Cry loud! A little louder! 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 Lift it up and get your voices going! For he is a god; either he is musing or he is relieving himself." Or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Of course, we know the rest of the story, right? Elijah brought all the water. He's dumping the water on his, you know, altar there. And then he says, okay, God, according to your word. And the fire just came down and consumed it all. And the people fell on their face saying, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Well, Isaiah frequently taunted the Babylonians also for their trust in numerous false gods, which were nothing but man-made idols. Bible Knowledge Commentary says... Idols are valueless. They cannot talk, come alive, guide, or breathe. And idolatry, worshiping man's carvings rather than the creator stands condemned under God's woe. Indeed it does. Well, here in Habakkuk 2.19, the ESV translates uh, where the New King James says, It shall teach, as can this teach? And the answer is, of course not. Of course not. It's overlaid with gold and silver. It looks impressive. But it has no breath at all. This just in. If you want to teach, you have to be able to breathe. I know this is a little deep for some out here. But not here. (laughs) But out here in the world. Uh, To claim an idol can teach is beyond absurd. It can't even take a breath. Verse 20. Drum roll, please. Actually, let's just be very quiet here now. Uh, Verse 20, But the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. The word but is a contrast word, in contrast to the dumb idols that have neither life nor movement, is the Lord in his holy temple. The name Lord here is Yahweh, referring to the the self-existent, eternal, unchanging God. And that relates to his character. That's just why this is his uh, covenant name. He doesn't change. He's always trustworthy. The true living God hasn't gone anywhere. He remains in his holy temple. And temple here can be understood in the sense of palace. Uh, It is from his heavenly palace that the king of the universe rules the world. This is where he is. This is where he is. He hasn't gone anywhere. And because of this, the whole earth is told to keep silence before him. The Hebrew word here, uh, "haja," uh, translated as silence, literally means hush, hush, hush. Let all the world, let all the earth hush before him. This is the appropriate response in view of the coming judgment on Babylon, which looks ahead to the judgment on the final form of the Babylonian system under Antichrist. The language used here is consistent with that used in the prophetic scriptures in relationship to the reverent response called for in view of God's judgment of the world that will usher in the Messiah at his second coming. Consider some of these scriptures. In Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 7, it says, Be silent in the presence of the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests. Catch that. Be silent in the presence of the Lord. And then in Zechariah 2.13, Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. And then uh, Psalm 46. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in fire. Really speaking what's going to happen in relationship to the second coming. But then he says, be still and know that I am God. There's a context here. We often quote this verse, but it's a context here in relationship to what God's going to do when he brings judgment upon the world. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. This call for silence is like a dramatic pause called for in the recognition of God's sovereignty. In recognition of the sovereign God who is about to intervene in an awesome manner. Jay Vernon McGee says, It would be a wonderful thing if we could just have a week of silence. Wouldn't it be wonderful if everyone in Washington, D.C. would just keep their mouth shut for a week? <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. He says, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if everyone who is doing so much talking would just keep quiet and wait before Almighty God? Yeah, that would be nice. What is being called for here is a reverential hush that properly recognizes God for who He is. The first step in repentance really is to keep your mouth shut and really listen to what God says. Uh, we know this verse, right? Romans three nineteen. Now we know that whatever things the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. We're just running our mouths all the time. That, humanity has a a running mouth problem. We really do. And I go there, except for the grace of God, for sure. But instead of listening, we tend to talk, we tend to defend ourselves. God says, stop talking, admit your guilt. There's no defense. There's a reason Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The application to all the earth really would include unbelievers. Uh, and the application there is to be still and know that God is God. You better get right with him. In the calm before the storm of the coming judgment, before he pours out the cup of his wrath. Psalm 2, verse 1, begins with the question, Why do the nations rage? And why do they rage and carry on like they do? They're anything but silent before God. And they're full of rebellious talk. But the psalm goes on to say, The Lord will hold them in der- derision. And that God will set His Son as King on His holy hill of Zion. The King is coming. Better shut your mouth and bow before Him in silent humility. And the psalm concludes this way, Psalm 2, 10 through 12 Now therefore be wise O kings be instructed you judges of the earth I often think the Supreme Court should read this every time they are in session before they make some ruling this would be good uh, be instructed you judges of the earth serve the lord with fear and rejoice with trembling kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little blessed are all those who trust in him And I love this verse too Really, part of Isaiah 53, at least it should be, um, where it says in verse 15, So shall he, I think the better translation is startle, so shall he startle many nations, kings shall shut their mouths at him. You know, the world's not going to shut up until Jesus shows up. But when he shows up, they're going to shut up. They're going to shut their mouths, kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see, and they'll be speechless. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Well, I've been making some application for the unbelieving world. Let's close with an application for us as believers. H.I. Ironside said, There is nothing harder for man to do than wait on God. The restlessness and activity of the flesh will not tolerate delay, but counts time spent in waiting and watching as so much time lost. It is blessedly otherwise with Habakkuk. As no reply is at once given to his eager, anxious questionings, he takes the attitude of the patient learner who remains silent till the master is ready to make known his mind. In two four, God says the just shall live by faith. And the way that is demonstrated is by keeping silent before God, knowing that he is sovereign and will act in accord with his perfect timing. Bible, Bible Knowledge Commentary says... For Habakkuk, the message was clear. Stop complaining. Stop doubting. God is not indifferent to sin. He's not insensitive to suffering. The Lord is neither inactive nor impervious. He is in control. In his perfect time, Yahweh will accomplish his divine purpose. Habakkuk was to stand in humble silence, a hushed expectancy of God's intervention. Well, chapter 1 shared... Uh, Habakkuk's complaint before God. In chapter 2, he says, live by faith and keep silence before me. What a great message. Live by faith, realizing God's got this. And there's a time where I just need to shut up and realize, you know, if my three-pound brain, I really don't need to figure out this whole thing. Uh, There's a big-picture reality, and we see just a little part of it. Trust God. In due time, he will write all things, In the meantime, faith waits upon him in silence, knowing that he is God. Now, Babylon, 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 it seems to have its way in our world for now. And it seemed to be that way in Habakkuk's day. And it was kind of that way. But that's not the end of the story. God's still in his holy temple. It's just a matter of time before the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's coming. It's just a matter of time. Therefore, let all the earth keep silence before him. Maintain a holy hush before the sovereign God. In faith, hold the dramatic pause and let him finish the story. The king is on his way. There will be a fulfillment of these prophecies. Keep the holy hush. Let him finish the story. All right, let's stand and have our closing song.